Welcome to the Wizardist Podcast. I'm Paul Canetti. This is episode seven. Today, I am sitting down with Brian Shimmerlick, the co-founder and CEO of an awesome company called Vengo Labs. Vengo is basically a network of small cloud-based touchscreen vending machines. So this is not your grandfather's vending machine, that big clunky thing sitting in the school cafeteria. This is a thin, sleek touchscreen machine that mounts to the wall, gets its updates over the cloud. Uh, Basically, the internet meets vending machines. And I've known Brian since high school. He's another uh, fellow Horace Greeley High School graduate. Um, I didn't actually really mean for it to work out this way, but a lot of these early podcast guests have been from Greeley. Uh, Jason Laska, Brian Scordato, of course, my brother Justin, most recently Blake Harris, and Brian Schimmerlich. Um, We all went to the same high school, so I don't know what was in the water there, but a lot of the best entrepreneurs I know uh, all came out of that same town and that same school. Brian and I discuss his career trajectory. He studied finance. He uh, got an MBA from Stern, was working at JP Morgan, and always had this entrepreneurial bug. He actually founded his first company at age 19 in college, which he, uh, he goes into that story. And all roads just led him back to starting a company. And he's been now doing Vengo for over five years. Um, they have some incredible investors like David Tisch, Brad Feld, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk. You know, we talked to uh, Sean Cheng, who's running Gary's investments at Vayner Capital. I came to understand during this conversation that it's not just about vending machines for Brian, but he sees the world of smartphone and tablet and computer screens um, as being oversaturated and everyone's basically competing for that same real estate. And what's so amazing about Vengo is that this is a standalone physical object in a public space that basically introduces brand new screen real estate. And not only can you buy stuff on the spot, but you can learn about products. Um, It can be used for marketing and advertising. It's basically an internet of things play, but instead of thinking about internet of things as something that happens in the home, this is like an internet of things device that lives out in the world. It's in your cafeteria, it's in your office, it's at your gym, it's in the mall anywhere you would expect to find a vending machine and even some places you wouldn't expect to find a vending machine because it's so much smaller uh, that it can fit pretty much anywhere. It was also really interesting to learn about the origins of Vengo. It started as a company that was trying to put vending machines inside taxis. So think about how small and sleek a machine would have to be to fit inside a taxi. Um, And that was sort of the origin story. We also just talk a lot about what it's like to run a company, to be a founder, to recruit and manage a team, what it's like to be a CEO. Brian is one of the few people in my life that I can really talk to about uh, the realities of CEOing. It's the sort of topic that you don't want to just talk with anybody about because as CEO, you're supposed to sort of give off this constant, you know, aura of strength and confidence. Uh, But the truth is being a startup CEO is really hard, especially for those of us that are learning as we go and not some sort of career corporate CEO that's been CEO at a million different companies and now got, you know, airdropped into some tech company. When you grow something from the ground up, you don't necessarily intend to be a CEO. Uh, You just intend to solve a problem. And 
build a product that helps a certain type of customer. And over time, if you're lucky enough, you actually get to turn that idea into a company and into a team uh, and you become a CEO. And so I think it's an area not often discussed because I don't think people want to make themselves vulnerable in that way. As always, I encourage you to subscribe to The Wizardist Podcast if you have not yet done so. I've got new episodes now coming out every couple of weeks with unbelievable guests, startup founders, VCs, people in media, people in tech. I'm just so excited about the response I've gotten so far and the willingness of these amazing people to sit down and chat with me. Uh, So make sure you subscribe. Also, if you like the podcast, tell your friends. Uh, Without further ado, here's Brian Shimerlich, co-founder and CEO of Vengo Labs. So tell me a little bit about yourself, about Vengo. Um, You know, I'm not even sure that I know the full origin story. Um, and I'm always curious also about not only the origin of the company, but like, like what happened in your life leading up to that, that made it so that you were the type of person that would want to do this. I feel like that's a piece that people sometimes skip over. They're just like day one, like I thought of this idea and it's like, well, wait a minute. Like, why are you even thinking of ideas? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. So, I would say, I, let's start at the beginning. I'm at the, I'm in college, I'm at Michigan, and I've just got like this, you know, this need to do something. Um, and what did you study undergrad? I studied finance and accounting. Got it. Really exciting. And <laughs> I came up with this idea that there needs to be a service that delivers everything you need to campus because I'm a freshman, I don't have a car, and there's so many things that I need. And so- And this is pre-seamless, pre-Amazon Prime, pre-any of that, right? This is 2003. Yeah. And I come up with this whole plan, and I get myself meetings with the heads of these grocery stores in Ann Arbor. And the plan is so good. And it's so obvious because you have all of these people who are right there on campus and don't have cars. Right. And so I came up with this plan where the grocery store would package these orders that they would receive through our site. And then we would just come pick them up and deliver them to campus. It made so much sense. So you invented Fresh Direct. Except we got absolutely nowhere. And so we couldn't get anyone to partner with us. And they were just like, you're 19 (laughs) and you have no experience doing anything. We have a successful business before we met you. Why would we risk that? And this deeply affected me. And because of this experience, I went like very safe, very corporate, studied finance and accounting and um, ended up getting a job in finance. So I get out into the real world and you know, I'm kind of excited about this new job. You know, it's 2005 now. Yeah. I'm starting at JP Morgan, um, you know, on 47th and Park. And I quickly realize 
this is not going to be fun at all. And all the people that I was working with were miserable. Like they were unhappy. Like my boss was unhappy. His boss was unhappy. And I became like very depressed because, you know, this was the real world. I'm just getting out there. And it seems like people are really unhappy. And what is it specifically? Like I've never worked in finance, but the story you're telling sounds familiar to me. But like in a nuts and bolts kind of way, like what is it that's making everybody so miserable? I think for me, I think it was about a few things. One was just pretending that you were someone else, right? So people walk into their jobs in finance and it feels like they sort of check their personality at the door. Hmm. And they have to be like super corporate and polished, um, which is the exact opposite of the startup world, right? Um, Two, I think people don't really make decisions. I mean, there's definitely some super interesting people uh, and positions where they're making really interesting decisions. They're trading, they're selling. Um, I happened to not have one of those jobs. It was like sort of back office. It was about interest rate risk. Wow. And our job was to mitigate interest rate risk. So our job was to make no money. It was like a little bit away from the action. Um, so I think people, they don't make decisions. There's politics. And it's sort of the same every day. And so I'm, I'm sort of feeling like, oh, this is a place, this is what life is like, that you have to go into the work world and everyone's unhappy and people just accept that. And that's what just, life is like. This is just it. This is yeah. as good as it gets. Yeah. So after a couple years, I try to get a little bit closer to the action. I moved to another job and I'm investing in hedge funds and it sounds really cool. And I hated that too. Huh. It was still very boring. Um, and I wasn't really making any decisions and seeing the outcomes. And so, um, you know, in this job, I'm like making an okay salary. Everything's fine, but I'm miserable. And I quit my job and I take an internship at a startup for minimum wage. What startup was that? It's called Conductor. And it's, uh, it's very successful. I think they're up to like 70 people. Uh, when I was there, they had about 30 people. And I got to intern directly for the CEO of this company, Seth Bismarnik. And what like drove that? In other words, did you quit and then think, I'm going to now find a startup and intern a startup? Or were you sort of plotting this while you were still at your hedge fund job? I'm, I was definitely plotting. I'm always plotting. Um, I was thinking that ultimately this would lead into business school. Um, and so I found the internship, locked down this internship, you know, for minimum wage. Um, it was pretty easy to get. Um, and then I quit my job and started over again and just thought, like, life is too short to be unhappy. I need to figure something else out. Wow. So I'm guessing you learned a lot 
at that internship and that sort of set the path for yeah so i was what was to come exactly i was so inspired that the people there wanted to be there that they cared about what they were doing um and it was just like a completely different vibe it's interesting about when you talk about how people would sort of check their personalities at the door and like sort of take on some mask or some like you know uh that everyone was fake, you know, not that everyone was like lying necessarily, but that you're sort of adopting some sort of like persona. Yeah. It's a character that you're playing. Right. Right. And that's interesting because I mean, I agree certainly in the startups that I know and, and just in like the tech industry in general, it seems like people are just who they are. And I never actually stopped to appreciate that until right now. Yeah. I think that's, what startups are all about to me. I mean, sometimes like, I don't know, do you ever see someone who's dressed in fancy clothes and it's like, it doesn't fit. And then sometimes you'll see someone who's dressed in casual clothes, like a friend of yours. And you'll be like, you look funny in casual clothes. Like I'm used to seeing you in a suit. Um, It's just like that. I actually, I always think about this, not even in the professional context, but like, for instance, Right. There are just certain clothes that if you wore them, you would be like, this isn't me. I'm super particular about my clothes, even though I wear almost like like I'm wearing a black T-shirt and like jeans. But like that's what I wear every day. But if I wore like a slightly different black T-shirt that probably no one else would even realize, like to me, I would know like, no, no, this isn't me. That's weird. Like, what is that? Because it's really nuanced, you know, like we grew up in the same town. Right. I would imagine had similar upbringings, but like what is you and what is me is different. Like, like how does that get formed in the first place? You know, I don't know. I think if we, if we could figure that out, we would be somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Let's work on that. But I think to me, like startups is all about like being yourself, being comfortable, um, and about the results instead of like, the game got it yeah that's an interesting way to put it i mean certainly you see the fruits of your labor you know each and every day or that's the hope at least but at the same time i feel like one of the hard things about startups especially starting startups is that you don't really um you don't necessarily know where you're going you know where i was imagining like a big corporate job it's like at least you know what the point is you know Mm -hmm. where the goalposts are you know where you're aiming the startup, I feel like you have some idea of where you want to go, but the truth is you're so swamped with whatever you have to do today that it's really hard to work towards that. And then in my experience, a lot of times what you think was the goalpost is actually like a mirage and you have to change to some other goal as you like while you're in flight, you know. Um, so I don't know. Like I, I think I don't I wonder I don't always feel like I'm seeing the results of the work. Do you ever feel like that? Well, I think you're touching on such an important point that sort of our jobs as CEOs is to sort of set those goalposts. And a lot of times you don't know exactly where it's going and and the goalpost has to move and that's okay. Um, But being the one who's saying, okay, the goalpost is moving. Uh, We're gonna put it here. Right, so you set it yeah, and then you move it. Yeah. And, and that's like, you know, trying to figure out, um, you know, why to move it, when to move it, make sure you're not moving it too much. 
Um, I think that's that's everything for a CEO. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that other people at a company, they think about those goalposts as being more fixed than maybe a CEO does. Mm-hmm. And that especially over the years, you really learn that the goalpost is basically just a best guess of where you think you need to steer the ship. But I've learned certainly that it's, I just know in advance I'm going to end up moving it. Yeah. Always. Yeah. And what I love that's different versus the corporate world is even though in the corporate world, you know where you're going, you know where the goalpost is. um, I didn't always feel like I was able to make decisions and see the outcomes. And to me, that's what makes things interesting is like, here's a choice and I have to make it. And then was it right? Was it wrong? And being able to see that, that keeps things exciting. Right. But at least you get to see the outcome. Yeah. You know that what you did has some effect. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you come up with Vengo? Like where, where did this idea come from? How did you pursue it? I would imagine it is a very difficult idea to get off the ground. I mean, almost any startup's difficult to get off the ground, but this seems extra difficult. It is. And it's extra difficult to scale too. Um, so Vengo started as taxi treats. And so basically um, I'm at this internship and I go back to business school. And you know, thinking about business school as just really an opportunity for me to figure things out and figure out what I wanna do. Um, and so I'm in first semester, it's 2011, and I'm really focused on, on entrepreneurship and where I can find my place um, you know, in the industry and find a career that will just make me happy. Do you right? think business school was beneficial in the end? Like, are you happy that, that you got a, a business degree? So my experience at business school was very positive, very different than most people, right? So I very quickly started working on taxi trees, what became Vengo. Um, and I was good at using the opportunity to make this all come together, using the resources, the you know business plan competitions and stuff like that. So you so, really leveraged that. I did, yeah. yeah. And I think business school is very much dependent on what you want to get out of it. Right. Um, and you need to know what you want to get out of it and, and go and get it. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't necessarily even have an opinion because I didn't, I didn't go to business school, but I'm so, I, I, I think you know this, but I'm teaching a business school class at Columbia Business School, all MBA students. And the first thing I always say every semester is like, I don't have an MBA. So I don't know anything about anything. The only the only business school class I've ever taken is my own. Uh, but I get a lot of students that are working on startups that are pursuing these ideas. I hope they're taking advantage the way it seems like you have. But part of me always wants to say, like, don't even bother with the school part. Just go do this. Like, why? You know what I mean? If that's really what you want to do. Um, so looking back, do you think you could have done it without the school or the two sort of tied up in your mind where that's really what allowed you to sort of like get it off the ground? So I, I think I could have done it without business school, um, but there's just a lot of the random pieces that come into play. You know, it all came together at, at Stern and it worked out great. 
I think in general, um, you know, you can learn design and UI UX at business school, um, but it's it's hard to teach broadly entrepreneurship. Yeah, and I think generally the people who are successful entrepreneurs are not the people who are going to pay to go into class to be taught entrepreneurship. Right. Like they're the ones who are going to put it together themselves and Entre- figure it out. Entrepreneurship is like an undergrad major now too. Like you can just go to school and study entrepreneurship, whatever that means. Yeah, and I think in general, there's a very small percentage of MBAs that really go out to start successful companies because I think those people who are intended destined to start successful companies are sort of figuring out how to do that on their own. Interesting. But I think that I think you can learn a lot and sort of allow a more corporate type to sort of dip their toe and learn about entrepreneurship and, and sort of like get that inspiration in business school. So you're working on taxi treats. Yeah. What happens with taxi treats? Taxi treats, I'm presuming, had to do with treats in taxis? Yeah. So I'm coming home, you know, late one night in September 2011. Okay. And I was living on Avenue C and 2nd Street. And You know Simon used to live on Avenue C and 2nd Street? Really? Yeah, that's funny. It's an interesting spot over there. Like between C and D, closer to C. Okay, yeah, I was on the corner of C. That's really funny. And I loved the neighborhood, but also not generally like a place you want to completely just wander around at like 4 a.m. No, bad idea. So I'm going back to my apartment and I have, you know, typical like my refrigerator consisting of ketchup and mustard. And I'm like, oh my God, there should be snacks available in my taxi. Came up with this idea and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And so I reached out to sort of this one guy that I knew who was like a venture capitalist, you know, had no real relationships or connections to the industry, Um, didn't know what I was doing. But I knew like one friend's father was sort of like in this world. And I reached out to him and explained the idea. And he was like, I don't know if that's a good idea or a bad idea. But I do happen to know the largest taxi owner in New York. Whoa. Whoa. So I'm so excited. I put together this whole detailed presentation. I've got everything figured out. I go and I pitch this taxi owner. And he looks at me and he's like, kid, this is never going to happen. He was like, not only am I not going to put this in my, in my cabs, but I would like to recommend to you that you don't even spend any more time on this, you should do something else. Wow, it's like the grocery thing all over again. All over again. And so um, I went home that day. It was November 4th, 2011. And I'm really, really upset. I've been like planning this, looking forward to this, like thinking, oh my God, this is gonna be like an overnight success. It's gonna be in every taxi. Right. And. I'm so upset. So I go home and I start looking for someone to complain to. And I'm looking around at like the New York City government and I'm looking to write a letter to someone to be like, hey, someone needs to talk to me about this. And I find out that the New York City government had their own business plan competition. Wow. 
And the first like deadline was three days later, November 7th. And so I applied to this competition and out of 270 companies, we ended up taking down the whole thing. And wow. we were named New York City Next Idea 2012. Amazing. Yeah. Did you send it to that taxi driver? Like- totally like it just, was, so we woke up the next morning. This is now in March 2012. And we were on the inside cover of the New York Post. Oh my God. And, you know, just so excited. Definitely sent that link to the taxi owner. Yeah. Um, taxi owner, not driver. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. And, um, and F you. Yeah. And we had, we won $17,500. Wow. So yeah. what did you do with that money? So I had just given, you know, all of my money to NYU. Yeah. This was a tremendous amount of money to me. Um, and I was like, I've got to figure out how to turn this into a prototype. So I started by, you know, trying to put together a founding team um, and, you know, was looking for mechanical engineers, aerospace engineers, systems engineers, and, you know, was just talking to everyone, um, anyone who'd ever started a company, invested in a company, professors, um, all the, you know, NYU programs, and found some amazing people and found two engineers and put together this founding team. Amazing. I feel like a lot of people at this exact juncture are, for lack of a better word, like greedy about being the founder. Like I'm going to be the founder and I'm just going to, you know, use this money to hire a couple of contractors to build me my prototype or done it. But it seems like you understood that you needed to find experts and actually bring them into the team. And you you made that realization a lot earlier, I think, than a lot of other people do. I did not do that. I wish <laughs> I way, wish what you were saying The way you tell the story true. makes it sound like that. Okay, so tell me the real story. So I I was the typical business guy who thought that I hire engineers and they work for me and I try to pay them as little as possible. Right. And in hindsight, and this is one of the things that like when I'm advising, you know, young companies like entrepreneurs, this is one of like the key learning points. I was so wrong. Wow. Okay. So that's, that's really funny. Right. Because I, I find the exact same thing. This is like a really common piece of advice that I give is like, totally. you know, you, you have to find people that know about the thing you're trying to build. And, and give more equity. Like you want to find partners. Like, you know, I'm here I am with this contest win thinking that I'm, you know, killing it. And this company is, is on its way to success. And I've made so much progress. And like, you know, in, in reality, this is step one of like a million. In reality, you're just some dude with a pitch deck and yeah, 17,000 bucks. I've got nothing. Right. And so I think, you know, as you clearly stated, it's really about finding the right partners and making sure that they're properly incentivized to, you know, commit to this and like when commit that cash their life out, to this. Yeah. Then what? Exactly. So I take no credit for doing it right. Um, I, I mess it up, but I definitely learned through that process. Um, and because of the quality of the people that I was dealing with, we were able to 
get through it um, and come out the other side. So did you ever get them into the taxis? So basically what happened was um, we put together this founding team and we started working on a prototype. Um, we, you know, we reached out to a metal shop. We 3D printed the insides. Uh, we found someone who could, you know, hack together sort of like the bare bones of an app where we could put the something together where you could touch a screen and dispense an item. And that was sort of like our next step. And so, you know, through the process of going from winning this contest to putting the, the prototype together, um, you know, we had developed some relationships with investors and we're sort of keeping them in the loop. And when we were able to show this beautiful prototype that barely worked, but looked amazing. Um, we How long were, did that process take? So we got them. The win was in March and we completed the prototype in October. That sounds pretty fast to me. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we really, we did it right in terms of sort of like the lean, you know, prototyping methodology. Yeah. Where we had clear goals um, and requirements and they were pretty simple. Uh, and we just wanted to demonstrate, you know, what this thing could look like. Yeah. And so how, what of that original prototype do you think still survives today? Like, like when you think about the Vengo of today and the original sort of idea of taxi treats, like, like what, what is different and what's the same? Like, is there some sort of central thesis or sort of ethos that has carried through? So I think, you know, so much has changed and we've learned so much, but the core thesis of a cartridge based vending machine um, that's very, very thin and doesn't, you know, isn't invasive into an environment absolutely remains. Instead of like the sort of spring loaded individual vending machines of yesteryear. Exactly. So vending machines are the last industry in the world to embrace technology <laughs> and the machines, the, you know, the thesis behind a normal vending machine is let's make it as big as possible so we can stuff, you know, as much junk in there as possible, sell it a dollar at a time and, you know, not have to come restock it too often. And, and what is a vending machine? Okay. So like you're in a mall, the mall owns the vending machines or you tried explaining this to me once, but I already forgot. Like, like how, how does it work? Who's responsible for the machine? Who refills it? Where's who is getting that money? For the traditional industry. Yeah. So the way it works is it's this like huge, slow moving industry. And what we think of as vending companies are sort of really logistics companies. So there are these companies out there and they buy vending machines and they place them at locations and they figure out how to stock them with products efficiently. Like renting the space or something or? Generally, in the mall example, um, they'll take care of everything. The mall will give them the space and they'll pay the mall a percentage of the revenue. Got it. So they basically say, look, no one is using that corner. Let us put a machine there. You do no work. 
Just let us plug this into the wall and you'll get some money. Exactly. And by the way, we're going to hook up all of these shoppers with, you know, stuff they want because they're right. hungry and thirsty. Right. So we're making it a better experience for yeah. your mall goers and, and whatever. Exactly. Interesting. So basically you had to shrink it to fit into a taxi in the first place. But then you realize they should just be smaller in general. Well, we just thought, like, why are they so big? <laughs> <laughs> they really like why like giant machines. It's, and it's because their their business model is around retailing one dollar items. It's really not much more complicated than that. Um, that's what they think will sell the most, and so. You know, we sort of always had this concept of it can be a retail experience. It could also be sort of this marketing or media experience. And if you were to bring in that that different lens of the marketing or the media and you were to sell items that maybe were more expensive than one dollar, why would it need to be so big? Yeah. And so... Um, by changing the form factor and the look of it, the design, we could open up all of these new locations that have never had a vending machine huh. um, and almost, create this, this opportunity. It's almost like, you know, just thinking about sort of like, you know, value per square foot in retail or something where yeah. you have some like giant dollar store yeah. that's like has a million SKUs yeah. and but they're literally a dollar, whatever, same same idea. And then you say, look, we could actually divide this into two or three smaller stores selling, you know, luxury goods and make a shitload more money. Totally. Startups have what's called vanity metrics, which means like it's sort of real, but it's mostly just to make myself feel good. Yeah. And um, whatever we, gets the graph going up into the right. Exactly. We love sales per square foot, which is a real metric for retailers, but it's sort of just kind of a joke for us because the machine is so, so small <laughs> so um, like per square inch. Yeah. And we're like, well, you know, per square foot, we're 10 X, you know, what a traditional vending machine is. Wow. Yeah. That's funny. Right. But it's not like you're putting 10 Vengos where right. one machine exactly. used to be. That's amazing. Yeah. I love that. That's like a funny uh, hashtag or something like vanity metrics. And yeah. Just everyone posts their, totally. their number one. Uh, so, so the Vengo of today, like, how do you go? So you sell to the vending machines or you sell directly to the malls and sort of undercut that whole system? Uh, mall just being a random example. So what we do is we actually sort of studied the industry and we figured out, you know, this is you know, where we started was this is a tough business and it's a tough business to scale. And so we tried to figure out what would be sort of the best way to scale the business. And we settled on sort of embracing, in some ways, the, the manner in which things have always been done, which is these vending companies who are in the business of buying vending machines, placing them and servicing them, right? Because if you think about like Van Gogh having a million employees who are running around restocking vending machines, um, it's going to be a tough business. Yeah. And so what we do is we actually sell the vending machines to the vending companies and let them take care of things on the ground. And they place them, they restock them. Um, but instead of that being the whole business, 
there's also this recurring business on top of the platform, the network of vending machines. Because they're digitally driven, um, we're able to control them remotely and we manage the software and we go out to the brands that make physical products and we explain to them and try to convince them that setting up your products in these locations, you know, like gyms, colleges, hotels, where people are spending their time and need products is a really effective marketing spend to reach these consumers, to get them to try the product. And we couple that digital and the physical and we manage it all remotely. So you are able to basically come in with this unique proposition, which is that we can get you contact with these customers or potential customers in physical reality, but not through traditional retail uh, and not through, you know, some guy standing on the corner handing out samples but basically using this idea of the vending machine to, to market these, these products. And so do you do that with like, is it free samples or is it just like displaying stuff on the screen? Is it sort of like a pay to play uh, where like there's five items in the machine, but one is sort of like the featured item, all of the above. Yeah. So, you know, if you, if you think of a digital vending machine, it's coupling the physical and the digital. And like, there's really almost nothing that does that. Yeah. They're just totally segregated. Um, and so we do, uh, we, we do all kinds of things. We do samples where you can sort of uh, make it more of an interactive experience where it's like answer a question, enter your email, unlock a sample. Um, and then if you want to buy a product and have it take, you know, eight seconds and pay with your phone, you can do that too. Um, and so we'll, we'll be like running digital content so you can learn more about the items, get comfortable that you're going to buy this and like what, you know, what kind of charger is this? What kind of headphones are these? Got it. So you're educating. It's funny. It's almost like you're right about digital and physical. The closest I can think of is almost like Amazon Prime now or something where I'm like, I'm choosing something. And then within the next hour or two, it's here. And you're just like shortening that time to seconds. Exactly. And we think about the world in terms of if you could get anything delivered to you in 20 minutes, what products would that be too long? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So like, what's an example? I think a charger, um, a snack, right. headphones at the gym. So things that are like complete game changers for you. And things that you need right now. Yeah. Right, right now. It's pretty crazy. Uh, I, it's also interesting that you guys are using the existing sort of distribution network because I feel like that is key. Because otherwise, right, you're just like, you know, if you go to a vending company and you're like, look, you can buy from one of these like traditional manufacturers and make X, or you can work with us and make 2X, 4X, 10X, whatever. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, why? Why would I not do that? Yeah. And, and we, you know, we're, we skipped a couple years and where we were like playing around with the model, testing things out, learning, you know, messing things up. Um, and so, you know, that's sort of where we settled, where we're not replacing the other machines. It's just a new thing that these vending companies can do to 
sort of supplement, diversify their business. I love this because I feel like there's this mythology where for a startup to disrupt an industry, it has to be like the complete vertical stack. So you're not only creating the machines and the software, but you are also the distributor. You're also restocking. You're also creating, you know, first party products that you're going to place in the machine. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, Vengo brand cola and like, and, and sometimes, yeah, that's totally, I guess that is a good model for certain startups, but I feel like first of all, it's biting off a lot. And the second is that sometimes if you have a really entrenched industry, it's better just to go with the flow, like just to drop something in the stream and let the current take it rather than like drain the whole stream and put in your own water, you know? Totally. And, you know, for we, we have a really like weird different business. And I think, you know, when startups are just starting out, it's all about, you know, focus, 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 do one thing, do it really well. For us, in some ways, we had to start out really broad and then earn the right to narrow the focus of what we do, right? Because when I first went to a vending company and tried to get them to buy the Vengo, the reaction was the same as, as the taxi owner, you know, get lost. Like I buy my, my vending machines from one company. It's a public company. Right. Um, and so we had to build the business by and prove it out and then earn the right to narrow the focus and sort of offload different pieces of it. So, you know, I used to restock the vending machines myself on Sunday mornings with a ring of keys. And, you know, I looked like a janitor with this ring of keys. And slowly we were able to, you know, sort of take that restocking responsibility off of our plate and then take the manufacturing you know responsibility off of our plate and really start to hone in on the pieces that are the most interesting to me which is the software the media the marketing yeah it's so interesting to think about this i don't know what you call it but you know we started around the same time bango and and maz and two totally different types of businesses and I feel like you're one of the only other founders and CEOs and companies that I know of that has sort of followed a similar trajectory where, you know, this other sort of myth of, of startups is that either you like, you know, go to a million or you go to zero and it happens really fast. And, you know, this sort of typical VC model where it either just completely blows up in your Uber or Snapchat or something, or you fail immediately and you're on to the next thing. And I'll speak for myself, but I, from what I understand, it's the same with you guys, where instead it's just like there's this other scenario that nobody talks about, which is you just build a good business and you have customers and you are innovating and you're growing uh, over time. And it doesn't really fit nicely into this model of you know going to zero or, or going, you know, to a million and 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 I don't mean that in a insulting way. I hope you don't take it that way. Like like in other words, when we were pitching Maz, we were like when we were raising our seed round, it was like we're gonna overthrow Adobe. Like that was our pitch, you know. Um, 
Now, of course, in certain areas, we have Adobe is a real competitor and we've, we have overtaken them. But as a company, Adobe's worth, you know, I don't know, 15, 20 billion dollars. Like we're certainly nowhere near Adobe. We're, we're a you know, mosquito on their arm, um, but we're still succeeding. So I don't know. Like, what do you think about this this limbo? Uh, does it bother you? Do you do you mind sort of being in? that middle period or do you feel like this is actually a great place for a business to be and that the whole sort of you know vc model is is just flawed to start with yeah so not only do i not mind but i totally embrace it um i love that we're building a real business we're doing it sort of brick by brick um and i also think that it it has you know some some upside um, to sneak up on people as all of these brick and mortar stores keep keep closing and everything's so so digital and all of a sudden you know we have 40,000 vengos across the country in the major markets so do you imagine that like a vengo could basically replace like a retail store when you think about like the big picture i d- i don't think it, it could replace the retail store you know but i think it's more I think about it as, you know, what role could it play in Amazon's world mm. where, you know, the phone, you know, I, I think about what can a Vengo do that you can't do on your phone. And it's really about getting your attention, cutting through the noise and the instant gratification. Something you see in the real world, yeah. interact with in the real world. Yeah, exactly. Um, but in terms of the, you know, failing or taking off and nothing in between, I think that it depends on the, the nature of the business, right? Like there's certain consumer facing social businesses where it has to take off. Um, I think for B2B businesses like ours, we can, you know, just work like crazy and just try to make progress every day and create something that's sustainable. Um, you know, I'm, I wouldn't necessarily say that that Vengo is guaranteed sustainable today, but we're certainly making progress towards it. And I think it can be sort of a lifestyle business with upside. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 a lifestyle business, you know, is almost used in this derogatory way, but like you can pick and choose. I don't know. Like, like I think about this, um, sometimes just that, that today when someone has an idea, when you have someone that's in business school or in college, like you were, and you just have this light bulb, the immediate sort of thought is I need to build this thing. I need to get VC funding. I need to, you know, and I feel like there's not a lot of um, alternatives actually to that model when you're thinking about tech. When you're thinking about tech, and and I've talked about this before on the podcast, but you know, unlike other types of businesses, I want to open a restaurant, I want to start a grocery store, I whatever. I don't know. I'm only thinking of food examples, but. Um, there are lots of different paths you can take, you know, but when you're starting a tech company, it's almost like the implication is it's got to be absolutely huge. 
And I think right away that I think you're dead on that certain businesses are sort of set up for that and certain aren't. And B2B in particularly, I think is just a slower grind. They still can be huge, but it's not, they shouldn't be like sort of put in the same category as like Instagram. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't make sense to evaluate them on the same criteria. Maybe that's the problem. Yeah, and I think as technology generally broadly has become more accessible for founders and sort of more democratized, um, founders are expected to really start building and not you know, have an idea that's looking for capital. Mm. Yeah, and to actually like build a business. Yeah. So as a CEO... How do you think about that each and every day? I feel like the CEO is a role that to non-CEOs is very, um, I don't want to say confusing, but like mysterious. I almost feel like even people that work at my own company don't necessarily know what I'm doing all day. They know I'm doing stuff. But unlike a lot of other roles, which like if you're an engineer, then you're doing the engineering. If you're a designer, you're doing the design. If you're doing you're a marketer, you're doing the marketing. Like the CEO is doing the CEOing. What does that mean in your world? Like, how do you think about the role? Is it what you thought it would be? I don't know. Yeah, I think for my company and my stage, my job as CEO is to ensure that we have the right resources in place in terms of people, um, in terms of you know systems, to make sure that we have the right resources in place for people to do their job and to set the strategic goals of the company, right? Like we talked about the mm-hmm. set, literally setting the goal yeah, post. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's what I see my job as, um, you know, so like it's so simple, but every month we have a meeting and we set our goals for the month. And, you know, I try to do the for myself. I try to do the same thing for the week and like literally just having one to three goals. And when you have that moment of like, wait, what what am I supposed to be doing? Because I think a lot of CEOs do have that. It's like, you know, how should I spend my time? It's just having that like, you know, that guiding light to say, you know, if you only get two things done this week. Make sure it's these two. Do these things. Because it's easy to get pulled into like these urgent, really non-important tasks. Yes. Yes. Every day. Yeah. That's how it happens. Just like from the front door to your desk, you can get totally derailed from whatever you had planned on doing today. Totally. I recently started doing these um, solo strategy days, I'm calling them, where I don't come to the office. And I go set up shop in a Starbucks or the other day I sat in like Madison Square Park. They have Wi-Fi, really terrible Wi-Fi, but um, and just like got a coffee and and I had intended for these to be full days. They ended up each being half days because of some fire that drew me back in. Um, But even just half day of sitting down and not replying to any emails, not doing anything that has to do with the business today. And just like letting my mind have a little time to think about the stuff. Because I'm always thinking about just like, oh, man, it'd be cool if we did this. Or like, oh, we could build towards this or this. Like these little ideas. 
but I never have time to really like process them, you know? So I started literally setting a time aside time to do that. Do you ever do anything like that? Like where you give yourself the time or, or is that sort of built into your week? I think it's really important to have opportunities to change your perspective and think about the business in different lights, right? Because when you're sitting at your desk and you're dealing with the day-to-day, it's hard to find that inspiration or thoughtfulness. Um, so I think it's, you know, one of the things I love about my job is is being able to work from different places and not being tied down to the monotony of, you know, same every day and being tied to a desk. Um, so I think, you know, I try to take some days where um, I work by myself um, mm. and just sort of think about things from a, a different perspective. And, you know, I think doing activities with the team is, is like the most rewarding activity. It's like just getting everyone uh, and not just doing it by yourself and sort of allowing the team to, you know, play paintball or like last week we had a barbecue and played games. And I think having multiple people in a different perspective um, can be where a lot of the bonding and the inspiration about like, oh, what if we did things a little bit differently can come from. It's like getting out of the day-to-day, out of the element. Yeah. Letting people sort of just let their minds wander a little bit. Totally. I always think about that. I know you have um, you have multiple offices. Um, we have, you know, an office in India. And one of the things that I always wish is that we could somehow capture those sort of in-between moments. It's like when you're walking to lunch or, you know what I mean? Like, like not a meeting, it's not a formal session. It's just like the stuff between, you know, uh, in the margins. I feel like it's really hard to capture with remote teams. Yeah. Uh, do you find that? I know your teams are a lot closer than New York and India, but still, when you're not actually with people physically every day, I feel like you lose something. Yeah. So first of all, I think that the in-between, what you're referring to, I think like that's that's the magic like broadly in life. Like I think the in between is what it's all about. There's a lot of beauty in that. Um, I, I don't think there's a magic way to do it, but I think one thing that we found effective is allowing people to sort of do other jobs for an hour for hmm. a day. Um, so for example. Some of our software engineers uh, were installing Vengos a couple of weeks ago. Cool. And like that's, I think that's where a lot of you know the inspiration can come from when you're just like totally taken to someone else's view. Yeah, when you get exposure to sort of a different side of the business or mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah, that's that's really neat. And is that like a formal thing you guys sort of look to do, or it's just these happy accidents when they come? I think it's. It's a little of both, but I think it's really encouraging, you know, when you have that monthly meeting of like, hey, what's what are your two goals? It's encouraging, you know, hey, this opportunity is going to come up. We'd love to see some, you know, other people 
get out there, right? For us, we have this concept of sort of being in the office and being in the field. And, you know, mostly people are really good about wanting to try other things and learn. And you know, the team is amazing. But you can imagine if you're in the office, it's, it's easy to look at the data and think you know what's going on in the field. Right. And so we always are pushing people to get out there and see what's going on. Right. And in some ways, it's similar to like the talk to your customer concept. Right. You can't really know what's happening until you're in the field. Yeah. I might steal that in the field. Isn't it weird how you have to like create the company culture and think of all this stuff? Like when you first came up with the idea, it wasn't like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to gather a lot of people and create their lives and and like and and a culture and you know almost like a mini society mm-hmm. and it all be around this shared goal of creating miniature you know modern media enabled <laughs> vending machines like right. like the idea is is always just the idea it's like there's a problem i have an idea for a product or a service going to fix the idea but like when you actually build a company there's all this other stuff like you know just to, from the practical sense like renting an office or whatever but then also it's like the people and and thinking of these sort of initiatives and activities um like i i, I never i i just it's not even that i didn't know i didn't even think to know that that was like a piece of it it's the hardest thing in the world and a lot of the interpersonal stuff can be the hardest parts and also the most rewarding i mean it's one of the most stressful pieces is that all of these people have invested so much into the company um, and, and into me. And, you know, more than anything, I want to reward that. Um, but, you know, on the day-to-day basis, I try to reward that with creating a culture that's sort of not a reflection of me, but more a reflection of the people in the room. And the way that they want it to be. And, you know, like going back to my days in finance, it's like, you know, instead of going to work and pretending to be someone else, um, just being really honest and comfortable and genuine um, and enabling people to, you know, have, feel some, some freedom, um, you know, literally and and sort of uh, emotionally to just um, be happy at work. Yeah, I mean it's powerful if, if if you can really do that and let people be themselves. I find you know you end up with not only happier but more productive teams. Yeah, because it takes energy to go against your nature. It takes energy to pretend. And if you can sort of let your freak flag fly, then you don't, you're not wasting that energy on that. And you can put that into the work itself. You know, you can put it into the, the, the places where you actually want to be putting it instead of sort of wasting it on, on the pretending. Yeah. And there's no one right answer and solution to how to manage a company culture. Um, we've been really lucky to have amazing people. Um, where, you know, they've earned the right to 
have some freedom and and build that trust. Um, you know, the core group, like we haven't had much change, um, growth or turnover in terms of um, the, the the team for like three years. Yeah. And so everyone's like really. It's amazing. In it. And, and I'm sure some of it is luck, but a lot of it is attributable to you and, and the founding team. And, you know, you obviously sought out these people, these good people, and, um, and were able to sort of assemble them in such a way that you let them, you know, sort of rise to their potential. Uh, and I think that's, that's another really hard part of the job, you know, is, is hiring and, and not just hiring for skills, but really understanding like who are the people that are going to become part of this family and actually, you know, where the, you know, the, the total is greater than just the sum of the parts. Um, totally. Yeah. It is, it is like a family and you know, there's, there's like a famous quote that every, happy family is the same and every unhappy family is uniquely different. Hmm. Um, and I feel like every startup is sort of its own beast. Yeah, it definitely is. So zooming out a little bit, thinking about not just your company, but thinking about this whole concept of the physical and the digital world intersecting. Cause this is something I think about a lot and and so not necessarily in the context of Vengo, but just in the broader sense, it seems like you guys are playing at this intersection and that over time that intersection is going to get a lot more important because the digital world continues to expand. But at the end of the day, the physical world is where we actually live. Mm-hmm. Like you actually need to for eat now. for now. You need to eat real food. You need to drink real water you put real soap in your hair you know at the gym you use real deodorant like there's only so far that the digital realm can take you but of course the digital is sort of enabling the reality when i order from seamless that's a digital experience but at the end i'm eating real food you know and so when you think about that in the broader sense like how does that how does that gap close Vending machines is part of it. Is it drone delivery? Is it 3D printing? Is it teleportation? I don't know. Like, like because you were saying, like, what what needs to happen in less than 20 minutes? And there are some necessities that happen have to happen in, in less than 20 minutes. But also, I think the tolerance goes down and down. So, for instance, I don't really need, you know, 24 uh, rolls of paper towel in the next 20 minutes, but it used to be that I could wait four or five days. Now with Prime, it's one or two days. Now with Prime now, it's one or two hours. So it's not about the necessity. It's just the expectation. And it sort of seems inevitable that eventually everyone will expect to get everything instantly. How do you think that actually will work? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to me, we're seeing, you know, Thinking, thinking more in terms of what's going on right now and starting there. Sure. What's going on is that Amazon is eating retail, right? And so, um, you know, 
I, I randomly went to the mall last weekend, which was like just a random activity that I haven't done in so long. Yeah. Probably since like we were in high school. What together. mall did you go to? Um, so I went to Walt Whitman Mall in Huntington. Wow. Yeah. I feel random. like that's a, it is random, but that's like a, that's like a well-known mall. I feel like I know that name. So, I mean, just like, it just doesn't make sense anymore to go into a store um, you know, and like I ended up since I've gone to the mall, I've ordered like multiple sizes of of a article of clothing online and just being like, oh, it'll be here in two days and then I'll return the one that doesn't fit. Hmm. Um, I actually rarely shop, but my wife convinced me to do this. <laughs> and so it's just like that idea of the physical place to shop to me, it's going to die like even, you know, I, I talk about this kind of stuff all the time in terms of the future of retail. And, you know, there's people who say, oh, you know, it'll always be more efficient to just pick up a, you know, I don't even know what size milk containers are, like a quart or sure. a liter. Yeah, it sounds, um, like it'll always be yeah, right. more efficient to pick up milk at the store. And I don't buy that. Like, I just see, yeah, some sort of... Right, this the is digital patently not true. Yeah, and it's people who there's you know I deal with a lot of the world who are the people out there who don't want the world to change. Yeah, who like you know they're innovation resistant. Yeah, um, grocery, um, you know, old school retail. Yeah, and I I think it's gonna get killed off pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the, the whole concept of a vending machine, is that it's that instant gratification, right? It's like, yeah. I want this right now, and I get it right now. And it's perfectly matching the supply and demand. Like, not only I'm thirsty, so I get a drink, but also, like, temporally, it's a match. I want it now, I get it now, you know? And... Right, you see these other areas that are working that way, but I mean, imagine a future where you don't even necessarily have to clothes shop in advance because when you're getting dressed in the morning, that's when you actually need clothes. And if there was some sort of mechanism to give you a, a new outfit in that moment, then you're sort of lining up the exact need at the right time with the exact thing at the right time. Right, and some sort of digital system knowing that you're going to need that article before you even know interesting but I, yeah so i think you know if you imagine a world without brick and mortar stores without pharmacies without grocery stores like what does that look like um and so right now we're at that you know two-day window right and so i think about what what could that look like in the next iterations. Um, and I think, you know, drones is the kind of thing that it sounds so ridiculous, um, but it also could change really fast. And yeah. it could be a thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I believe that things like take a while to change and it's a little bit slower than you think, but then it changes really fast and it happens faster than you think. Um, so I think like drones and driverless cars are going to play a really big role in the future of retail. 
Um, and you know, for us, thinking more specifically about Van Gogh, in that world where there's no groceries, no pharmacies, no stores, you know, I think that you know, you think about going to a location for the express purpose of retail. And we think about like bringing retail to a place where you want to be for other reasons. And where you already are. Yeah. Like and where you have example. the need, you have the, the use case is there. Yeah. The deodorant, which you can't download, is at the gym. Like that's where you feel the impulse. Right? And it essentially is enabling someone to download deodorant. Mm-hmm. Like that's, yeah. that's sort of the equivalent. Like there's a story I always tell, you know, do you remember when flashlight wasn't like a built-in app? You had to download a flashlight app, I do. you know? Yeah. So this was a few years back, but it was my bachelor party and some friends and I rented like a lake house and we got there really late at night. It's pitch black and there's a lockbox where the keys were there and we couldn't find it. And so we're like, oh, does anyone have a flashlight? And of course, like who carries a flashlight in their car anymore? And and no one had a flashlight. And then I was like, wait a minute, I could download a flashlight. And I went on the app store and I downloaded something from the sky. And all of a sudden I had a physical flashlight in my hand. And I was like, this is insane. Yeah, like, I love that. Right? I love the hardware and the software working together. Yes, exactly. And so really it's just that like for everything. Yeah, totally. Wow. Yeah. And like people always have used this term impulse purchase. Right, which is like you see something and you're like, oh, I could use that, and you buy it, like it's sort of unplanned. Yeah. But when you're shopping and going to a retail environment, you don't really feel the impulse to, to do anything. Like your job is to get your your chores done and return to trying to enjoy yourself. Right. It feels forced. Exactly. So we think about this concept of sort of aligning the the impulse that you feel with that impulse shopping opportunity it's super super interesting I, I think a lot about just in general sort of interactions as things that normally are done in like synchronously and making them asynchronous and then here it's basically the inverse which is something that normally is done asynchronously like the time when you actually feel like buying something or you have that impulse is separate than the time when you happen to be at the mall and you're like, well, I set aside Saturday afternoon to shop, but I don't really feel like doing it right now and making those things synchronous, like lining it up. And I think there are interesting new business models anytime you can sort of do one of those things, like something that normally is separate, making it together or something that's normally together and making it separate. Yeah, I mean, time is our most valuable resource. And I think businesses used to be in control and the consumer would have to, you know, spend their time um, doing less enjoyable things. And now, to me, the goal of tech should be to enable consumers to have, you know, more utility um, and be able to use every moment of their free time to be enjoying and businesses are now like working around the consumer figuring out how do I serve the consumer in a organic contextually relevant way that provides the most value to them and it's on their terms on their terms yeah 
I mean, that's that's really what it is, right? In other words, if you truly put the customer first, if you truly try to embrace that and and take your own wants and desires on the business side out of it, those are the businesses that seem to be succeeding, you know? And as soon as you introduce friction purely because it's better for the business, then you are going to lose against companies like Amazon, you know, because everything they do seems to be really about the customer. Interesting. All right. Well, I would be remiss if I did not ask you one last thing about your experience on Shark Tank. You're the only person I know that's been on Shark Tank. I watch Shark Tank every single week. What was that like? Like, what is the pitch like? How were the sharks in person? I want to know everything. Yeah, so we had a lot of fun with it. Uh, We started by going to an open casting at NYU. um, And we were lucky because the place where there was an open casting had a Van Gogh. So we snuck in, you know, a demo and really were able to differentiate versus the other people there. Um, We put together a video and instead of, you know, it being a serious, you know, VC investor pitch, we couldn't have taken it less seriously. We made it a complete joke. It was pretty funny and we just had fun with it Um, and then went out to L.A. and again, like just didn't take it that seriously. And I think that came through that we were just having fun. Um, So it ended up working out really well. Um, You know, when you're there pitching, we were in the tank for about an hour and a half. Wow. Yeah. So how much they air? They air about 10 minutes, 10 minutes. So it's, um, you know, we, we were there for a long time getting yeah. drilled. It's interesting that you talk about like, you know, sort of being light and because I actually thought, I mean, I, I thought you did a great job from what I saw on air, but it was pretty like intense. Like, I feel like the parts they kept were like sort of the hardcore negotiation and like, I don't know. So what, what was the rest? What were the other hour and 20 minutes like? So, you know, a lot of going into depth about the business um, and sort of, you know, really getting them up to speed, um, you know, on what is Vengo, where are we at, what's going on. Um, and yeah, I think the intensity was, you know, us really having fun with it and really like milking the moment <laughs> and, um, you know, maximizing the drama Trying to put on a good show. It was it was a good show, uh, right? I feel like they really created like those sort of tension, and probably the producers were just like eating it up because it's exactly what they they want is the drama. Totally, and we had a great party, viewing party. No way. Lots of tequila. It was <laughs> a lot of fun. That's amazing. That's so cool. Uh, yeah, I mean. There's definitely a through line here, even just in the few anecdotes that you've shared, like you entered this, uh, you know, casting call, like open casting call. You entered into the the city competition. Like there are these opportunities that are there and you are the sort of person that just goes and actually does them. And I'm sure there are other things you've entered where you didn't win or whatever, but like, I just feel like so many people don't even 
try, they don't even take that step. They just think that things will magically happen or will fall into their lap or they'll meet someone or, you know, uh, I don't even, I remember when I used to play in my band, I was just sort of fantasized that some record executive happened to be sitting at the bar and come over after the show. And, but that's not how it happens. You know, every good entrepreneur that I meet, that's always it. It's that like they actually went and tried and, and I don't know, it's just very clear even just in these few stories that when there is an opportunity, you just like jump on it. Yeah. I mean, most people in the world I've, I've found don't, they don't follow through on things. They, you know, you'll meet someone, they'll say, Oh, I'd love to help you by doing this, this, and this. And like 90% don't actually do it. You are one who does it. Um, and, and, you know, I pride myself on being someone who, who does it, you know, I, um, you know, following through and just, you know, really like waking up each day and being like, I wonder how much we could accomplish today. Like if I have a free moment, it's like, what could I be doing to move this along? Um, and so, yeah, it's all about just, um, getting out there trying to make it happen and being putting yourself at risk to you know fall on your face um, but but giving yourself the opportunity to um, to push it forward do you ever wish that that grocery startup idea in college that you had had a different reaction and that you had said fuck this guy like I'm gonna do it anyway or do you think that it was good that you sort of went back underground for a while. I don't know. It's tough because, you know, there's so much randomness and luck that goes into, you know, making your story come together, right? Like when you asked about um, was business school essential? It's like it's hard for me to imagine the story without that. Um you right, know, because this is your story. Yeah. You, it, it is, everything that happened led you here, so yeah. obviously it worked. So it's hard to imagine things, you know, the past being any any different. Um, but I think, it, you know, you just have to take advantage of the opportunities that you get. And I think, you know, I'm a big believer, the more, the more you're trying to make things happen, the more, you know, lucky that you get. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You have to... Luck is part of it, but but if you don't actually try, then you're pretty much doomed to fail. So you know that step one is getting off the couch, and I feel like that's for some people that's that's the hardest part. Totally. Um, well, thank you so much for coming to our little studio here, hanging out. Uh, great seeing you, man. You too, bud. The digital. It's ending machines. I'm